they were together, man. Unfortunate timetable, they seem to have previous experience, which kept calling them one way or another. You know how it is. But they battled on against overwhelming oddities. Where the poisonous monster of outdated busload of throwers did stick slightly, and they occasionally had to resort to the dry cleaners. Luckily, this did not kill them, and they weren't banned from the Olympic Games. They lived hopefully ever after, and who could blame them? week's when they was fab i'm ed chin yes believe it or not we are back and things have changed around here the first thing is that lonnie Pena is no longer with us uh, he has been preoccupied with work shall we say yes he's he's still with us he's still alive but he's uh, spending much time in the pacific northwest nowadays there are worse places. So, uh, if you're wondering who who this voice is, uh, after speaking with a number of people, a number of people you folks will have known of if you've been following this show, uh, particularly uh, Darren Murphy and Lonnie himself, who they suggested as someone who might be interested in, and he said yes, is Mr. John Stone. Hello. How are you, Ed? Oh, I'm... I'm wonderful. <laughs> it's been a rough couple of months on top of everything else, and I, I just got my second COVID shot yesterday, so Very dragging d- dragging just a little bit, but we're here. Yeah. 
Well, those people you mentioned, Darren and Lottie and Bruce Moody, a lot of people uh, we have been beetling out for years. And so when this came up, I thought, I can talk Beatles. <laughs> so here I am. There you are. Yeah. Uh, so Danny Christensen was in a band with you, uh, private numbers for at least a little while, although not quite yes. as long as I thought. Yes. Uh, and, and, and Danny has been uh, playing on my recordings for a long time, um, uh, making really great contributions. And uh, so, yeah, I've, I've known Danny a while, um, probably almost as long as I, I've known Bruce Moody. So that's a long time. I think 82 is when we met. So do you know the Fab Five guys? I know Joe. Hi, folks. I'm Larry Gatlin. Go see the Fab Five. They are fab. Danny's just so happy. He's so happy to, to A, have a regular paying gig even through COVID. Right. And then B, you know, uh, he be out there playing Beatles music. He grew up to be a Beatle. Who would have guessed? Very few people achieve that. <laughs> you may want to be Beatle, but you, Danny kind of is. What, what, jellyfish? I'd like to play <laughs> guitar and be a Beatle. That, that would be so swell. Oh, yeah. Those groups are connected, too. Jellyfish and the Beatles. Power pop. You know, how do you define power pop? And is it just being beatle or is it something different? You know, if you could define the term beatle then, you know, uh, maybe, because... Really, there's so many genres that they influenced that, uh, you know, I think part of it is kind of a singability to the melody that kind of draws you in. It's usually optimistic. And don't forget the jangly guitars. Well, well, for sure. I mean, the, it's odd. You know, beatle means so many different things to different people. Some will immediately go to the psychedelic. You know, some will say, oh, uh, Tears for Fears, Seeds of Love. That's a beatle song. And that's nothing like, you know, Day Tripper. Oh, right. Exactly. And, you know, put ELO in there. And, the, you know, this new uh, Lennon release, which I think you're going to talk about, has one of my favorite John Lennon songs on it, which is Cold Turkey. And that song, I think, helped start kind of the return to really punky attitude. There's one particular moment, you know, the way he starts a little drum riff going into the chorus is very Ringo-esque, you know. Yeah, then you can compare that to Alan White's drumming on Instant Karma. I suppose the best thing to say is that Alan White was appropriate when Ringo wasn't available. (laughs) Ringo was always going to be, you know, the only drummer who can match Ringo on a solo Beatles record is Jim Keltner. Yeah, very good. That's probably true. Of course, Alan White was a good drummer, and then he went on to be part of Yes. It was after Alan White had worked with John on Plastic Ono, George on All Things Must Pass, and then John again on Imagine, he left for Yes to replace the original drummer. Um, Bill Bruford. Yeah, it, what, what always interested me about Cold Turkey is that John said that Clapton never quite got the guitar he wanted on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I have a lot of feelings about Cold Turkey. Um, uh, John wanted it to be um, a single. 
And, and he actually proposed that to the Beatles and they all kind of passed on it. And I think that had a big impact on John, you know, I mean, it, it, it was yet another thing of how the things that he wanted weren't really being listened to. You know, he wanted I'm in the Walrus to be a single and that didn't happen. And he wanted revolution to be the A side and that didn't happen. And, you know, Although he, he fully admits that Hey Jude was the better song oh, to be. Uh, agreed. Agreed. But, you know, they made him re-record it. <laughs> you know, he had to go from revolution one to the single revolution. So, you know, I think the fact that they, they passed on cold Turkey particularly in retrospect, when you look and see how great a song that is. It's so simple. I mean, it, it's very much foretelling what would come just a few months later on Plastic Ono Band. Yes, but, you know, there's that great grungy guitar riff and the screaming and the there, there's just so much about it that is unique and forward-looking at that time. It's a pretty great record, uh, and and yet I can in listening to it, it's like you just McCartney would have done something a little different with the bass line, just as pushy, I think, but it would have been slightly different. And uh, you know, next week and into the future, we're going to get into the the Plastic Ono Band box. But the one thing that I've gotten from just my initial listen to it is Klaus's bass parts were very precise but they were very simple they were not at all mccartney-esque bass lines right and it is very possibly exactly what Lennon wanted and so that was his vision for that music just me for my desire it's like that magic thing that happened when the four beatles got together would have been beautiful on cold turkey yeah although you know I kind of can't see George singing back up on that. <laughs> well, you know, the, what was coming in the future w- would have been kind of a car wreck because I'm not sure that Lennon would have had anything to do with uh, My Sweet Lord. Exactly. Yeah. You know, there, there's a reason why it's the, the George O'Hara Smith singers. That <laughs> right. There's a reason. So part of the deal with this show is is that we've always been proud of the the Texas roots of this show this is uh, for the first couple of years we recorded uh, in the studios at rice university ah. and you know lonnie was in town and so you know we have an we have an international audience but people like to know sort of what's going on in texas which is <laughs> you know interesting yeah, that is interesting you know can't wait to get to houston man yeah let's go to houston you know beatles have been part of my musical universe for most of my life. So it's not surprising to me because it's always been here. When did you first encounter them? Was it Sullivan like everybody else? Pretty much. I was nine when that uh, show aired, but I had an older sister, uh, I think who was 12 or 13 and was right in that age group. And so I knew about the Beatles and began to hear the music and then saw Sullivan and you know everybody talked about the Beatles but it really didn't become my passion until I heard the flip side of paperback writer okay so it took a couple years it did I mean I I said the records were always in the house and and I liked them but as I said when I really kind of got into it was 
was rain. There was just something about it that, that spoke to me. And then, then when Revolver came out, I was... Revolver is the best Beatles record, but Pepper is the best record of all time by anybody. <laughs> okay. I, I, I've heard that before, and I like that quote. <laughs> I, okay. I was considering that, and I'll, I'll accept that. I heard Pepper the next year uh, when my cousin brought it, and I was blown away. And I was, from that time on, you know, the Beatles were mine. My sister kind of grew older and became more into Jefferson Airplane and the older groups. And so I, I kept the Beatles. When did you actually start playing then? Well, uh, I started, uh, <laughs> I began writing songs when I had to mow the grass. <laughs> um, in Houston, the grass grows green and thick. And so um, I would have to mow the lawn every weekend. And so I would start singing to myself, just little songs I would make up. And then a my next door neighbor got a guitar and I started kind of plucking around on it. Was that an electric lawnmower or a push mower? <laughs> that was electric. I, I, okay. That way I could sing at the top of my voice. Um, <laughs> so my parents bought me uh, a 12 string as a matter of fact, because um, I was really getting into Crosby, Stills and Nash and that whole thing. Settle this once and for all. Beatles or Stones? Beatles. Mainly because of the, the range of stuff that they did. The Stones did have a, a fairly wide range that they did, you know, because the Beatles had a much wider range of writing that they could do. And the Beatles could sing harmony. Uh, Stones can't do that for squat. But the, the Beatles can do it really well. It's a matter of personal taste, of course. But for me, Beatles, no question. Had the birds entered your orbit before then, or was the, was that the first time you were really listening to David Crosby? I was fully immersed in pop music as of 65, 66. You know, I loved the birds and Donovan, and my first concert was Paul Revere and the Raiders. They'll run a sidewalk survey now, all right? If you will, in the roll call, give me your name and age, but there's a question. If you were going to see a movie, and you can only see one of them, and it starred either the Beatles or the Monkees or Paul Revere and the Raiders, which movie would you go to see? All right. May I have your name and age? John Pollard, 18. I'd like to see the uh, Paul Revere. All right. Fair enough. May I have your name and age? Firefleck, 16. I'd like to see Paul Revere. Tina Lesser, 16. The Beatles. Daniel Campbell's 18. The Beatles. Tony Cashman, 16. I'd like to see the Beatles. Sandy Option, 15, The Beatles. Mike Klein, 16, Farver and the Raiders. Penny Pinwarden, 16, The Monkees. Dave Barkin, 16, The Raiders. Grace Cruzman, 17, The Beatles. Dan Snell, 18, The Beatles. Leslie Bodden, 16, The Monkees. Austin Dupont, 16, The Beatles. Don Marcik, 15, Farver and the Raiders. It's interesting. That's almost a... I didn't, I didn't keep track. We should have kept score. You know, I just kind of like that that music. And so I was well aware of the birds when Crosby, Stills and Nash came out. That was the album of the time for me. So they got me a 12 string and I started writing songs and I discovered that a 12 string guitar and a few songs would attract the opposite sex. <laughs> and so I, I began to think of my guitar as a 12 string girl catcher. Well, I mean, you look at hard day's night 
just George on that 12 string. I don't care if you're a heterosexual male. Just the raw, <laughs> the raw sexuality that, that it exudes from George up there playing that and then and dancing around. And it's like, wow. Right. right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Elvis had nothing on George Harrison. <laughs> it's true. From that point on, writing songs, that's kind of what I became known for among my friends. And then as I got older, I decided, well, I'm going to give this a shot. I had no idea about doing music as a way of life until rock and roll hit me. And then when rock and roll hit me, that changed my whole life. Started playing in bands. That's what so this was probably the late 60s, early 70s? Uh, early 70s. Okay. Unlike Danny, who as a what fourteen year old kid had people going and picking him up from the island, I have evidence that he actually started playing at two years old, <laughs> and look kind of like he is now. <laughs> he he seems to never change. <laughs> so, did any of your early songs get much notice? I mean the the other thing is at that time you could really make a living as a musician out there playing original music. That's not so much the case anymore. Well, it's never been easy because if you're really going to try to make a living, you're out there and you are trying to either cultivate an audience that's big enough to make it worthwhile to book you or to play music that will attract an audience. Because basically what you are at that point in your career is a beer salesman. You're trying to get people up and dancing and and just basically coming out to the club. And so a lot of times playing all original music or mostly original music is really a a tough slog. But I mean, of course, isn't that the same thing that that Paul McCartney said? You'd see a couple of students at the the door and they come in and we go, this is our kind of, these are our people, you know, and we'd just be playing. But they'd look at the beer price. And they go, no, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that's what matters at that age. And they'd go out. So we thought, no, we've really got to capture them. Even so, we learned, you know, we see them, we'd nod each other and go, dance in the streets, dance, clapping your hands, moving, doing this. We were so great. We are vital. You've got to come in. Don't worry about the beer price. Share one beer all evening, but come in. And we gradually built that. So it was jam packed by the time we'd finished that engagement. So we learned so much. You're bringing people into the club. (laughs) Right. You're justifying my pay. Oh, wait. They're paying me in beer. Um, yeah, so you are trying to attract an audience, and, and that is, is tough with original music. Uh, you have to be good. I have been privileged to know some really good people. And there's a case where Austin seems to be a little bit more receptive to original music than Houston has ever been. It kind of goes back to that 500 people I was talking about. You know, the perception is always based on publicity, you know, and, and when I was knocking about Houston in the early days, the perception was that Houston was a country town because of Gillies and that whole urban cowboy thing. And that, you know, so that was kind of the perception. Uh, It took a while to, to change that. Well, and that goes back to what we were saying before, that rock and roll was there, but it never really completely caught on as something coming out of Houston. Right. Having been there, there are quite a few people who I thought, he should have made it. They should have made it. 
you know, um, because it really is in a large degree luck and chance, serendipity. It's all, you know, I think if you were to sit McCartney down, he'd probably say the same thing. It was luck. <laughs> why Why did Galactic Cowboys or uh, King's X make it when some of the others who were arguably just as good didn't? Right. Well, some of it has to do with who's behind you. You know, you can get a, a person, a manager who is passionate about you, which is exactly what Brian Epstein was. Something tremendous came over, and uh, I was immediately struck by their, their, their music, their beat, and uh, their sense of humor, actually, on stage. And even afterwards, when I met them, I was struck again by their personal charm. And uh, it was there that really it all started. And that, that's really what there wasn't here in town. Well, there was a, a gentleman, but he he was really interested in um, controlling his empire. Yes. No, I know, I, I know exactly who you're talking about, and well, yeah, right. Uh, we, we 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 won't go there, but uh, the the next time we have uh, <laughs> uh, Jamie Darby Walla here with us, he, oh, he can yes. tell us about. Uh, Oh yeah. Uh, what happened to uh, to to his band Toy Subs? Yes, they're a band that really should have made it. They, you know, he wrote some really incredible songs, and and it's just amazing. And, and you know, Alex, great guitar player. It's it's kind of surprising that that one didn't take off. So, well, especially because they had those connections. I mean, uh, and and as I've mentioned, uh, you know, in in his band, his cover band right now. Uh, Alan Doss from the Galactic Cowboys is actually part of it. You think they sit around and trade war stories? Well, again, they've 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 known each other for so long. There, there's nothing left. I think. You're right. We already know all of them. Yep. Yeah. The the uh, although again when when I when I talk with them and they talk about sort of going off to the army bases, it really just sort of reminds me of the early sixties. You know, nothing nothing has changed from the Beatles time to now. You know, That's true. these bands being sort of shipped off to army bases and playing for people who want loud raucous rock and roll. Right. I'm gonna take this girl home, mate. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> we don't need to talk about the Houston music scene too no, much. No, no. So you know, we're we're in the seventies. What did you think about the solo careers of the of the four Beatles? I liked All Things Must Pass um, in parts. I don't know if you've heard the the new mixes of that album. We just we just got the we we just got the one, uh, and and that's uh, that's going to come. Well, I mean, you know, like you say, once we get through the the plastic Ono box, then we're expected to have an all things must pass box uh, right. this summer sometime. Well, the the absence of uh, Phil Spector's reverb is uh, illuminating, <laughs> and it's just it's such a different record so i i like the, the less bombastic things i mean i like run of the mill mm-hmm. and although i did like the art of dying that was good i like that album plastic ono band at first was was hard for me because it was you know so different it was shocking i don't believe in the beatles I said that in print rolling stone and on that album it was a very big thing with John. He was, you know, he was going through a, a, a hard, heavy time of finding himself. But I came to really love it. 
it's still a hard listen for me. I like it. It's a great record, but I really have to be in the mood for it. Right. Right. I have enjoyed just sitting with headphones and, and listening to it. it you wouldn't think it would be a, a really good headphone album, but it, but it is. It's like sitting in the room. But it, it was a hard slog. And McCartney, I liked the McCartney album, and I liked Ram. And then Wings kind of took off, and that was a, a rough beginning. But I was a fan. Did you have any thoughts about how things changed when the group split up, songwriting-wise? Kind of what I thought of McCartney was true of the other two main writers. And that is, you know, when you're in the Beatles, you, and I'm talking like I know, but you, you know, you, you write several songs. Let's say you write three or four songs. Oh my gosh, that's really all you need to do because you can turn to your guy, John, and John's got a few songs and then George's got it a few and they're good. And so you have this magnificent album after that, it was all, you have to write everything. And not only you have to write everything, but it kind of has to have a variety. You know, you're having to write in a variety of styles. So I thought it was really hard for them to, to switch to that complete responsibility for a record. And when they started out, they were still having to churn out albums in a regular fashion, at least one a year. Well, and that's the thing about Wings. McCartney was in charge. One of the things you notice is that Paul's bass lines sort of got a little bit simpler. They weren't Klaus Vormann simple, but they were not this inventive, melodic lines that he was doing in the Beatles through Wings. And I've always thought that was because he had to sit there and figure out what he wanted the entire record to sound like and what everybody's part should be. Right. You know, the whole production of the record, he just didn't have time to think about coming up with the world's greatest baseline. Right. And and you could listen to a record like Ram and think, when you hear those guitar lines, I'm sure Paul played some of them, but, but they all kind of sound Paul-like. So, you know, you don't sit there and go, well, that sounds like Hugh McCracken. They still have kind of a McCartney thing to them. And I don't know whether the guitarists themselves just thought, well, I need to play like McCartney. Or whether McCartney was sitting there and going, do this. I think it's a bit of both. I mean, they do each have their own style. Jimmy McCulloch was, was much more of a rocker. Lawrence Juber was and is just a great player right and i think that as the band went on mccartney learned to loosen up a bit to let the band be the band on ram it was still just paul and linda mccartney and so everything kind of went through that so that's why i picked dave spinoza and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh hugh mccracken and as it went along (laughs) you know perhaps the the story that mccartney tells about the fact that they were getting ready to do my love and um, uh, Henry McCulloch. How he came up and said, uh, "Do you mind if I just play what I, you know?" And McCartney liked to work things out, and so McCulloch played the, the guitar lead, and it was 
perfect. But then, then of course, he, he got caught in a trap because Paul was like, okay, that's it. Well, every time we play this song, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the solo I want. And he's that's like, the well, that, that, that's, that's not what I do. Well, that's the solo I want. So. Right. Yeah, you know, there are different kinds of musicians. There are those people who can just play a thing completely naturally, you know, and uh, who are good jammers. And there are other people who work better to work things out, to really compose the tune. And I think that's what Harrison was. You know, he was not a big jammer and he would work out all of his leads. The interesting thing about that is if you listen to George's playing, I saw her standing there live all the way through. He never played the same solo twice. (laughs) Right. And often plays it, uh, audibly wrong. <laughs> yep. I've seen several videos, you know, with the internet, you see so much more than you ever did before. I've seen several videos. It was from um, the Beatles for sale, but George goes into the guitar lead and he doesn't start where he, you know, normally started. And, and it was kind of going into place and, and you can see John visibly grin <laughs> like, Oh, you're stuck in this one now. <laughs> Well, and in one of the outtakes, John John comes up and then says, well, well what kind of a solo was that? <laughs> yes. I think that's why Jeff Emmerich says that he felt like a lot of times they were kind of cruel to George. But I think it's because George didn't kind of just naturally come with the part. He really worked things out. Which is, of course, kind of ironic because is notable for not really liking George. <laughs> you know, you read you read his book. He, he he's he's always one to put George down a little bit. Yes. Well, you know, he was right. just the little brother. So as the book progresses, it's like a human story of of George, probably the insecure guitarist becoming the, the you know the, the true artist that he was. You know, in the end, which is great. You know. Whereas George Martin, he would actually say, "Well, you know, I feel bad about the way we treated George." Jeff Emmerich, no. It's like. <laughs> Well, George was here, and George did this, and, you know, that, that wasn't very good, but it was good enough. Yeah, well, you know, Harrison just kind of goes places that, that the other two never did. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with Wonderwall. A terrible movie, by the way. It is a terrible movie, but but as a record. It's, it's a great record, but it's a terrible movie. <laughs> right. But I'm listening to the record and not the movie. Okay. So, you know, he he just was doing things way outside that scope, even with uh, Old Brown Shoe. I mean, that's a weird little tune with that jangly piano and, and, and what he did with the inner light. He went places that the other two just didn't go. Although Old Brown Shoe was kind of, well, okay, you you don't want any of my spiritual stuff. Here, I'm going to write a little pot boiler for you. Yeah. <laughs> and that that's how that came about. Right. Well, it's always worked for me. It's it's, it's an early favorite of George's. So the, then who, who haven't we covered? We haven't covered Ringo's solo career. Yes or no? Uh, I like a lot of it. I mean, what he did with... You know, I mean, his career with the Beatles required, in a way, less of him than the other three. You know, he didn't have to write. He didn't have to do much of anything. And so, therefore, that aspect of of his career wasn't really 
functioning like the other three. I mean, he wasn't famous for writing songs or, you know, so he has had an amazing career since then, you know, that he, he plays it well there. He's made some choices that are not great, but, uh, early on, you know, I thought the Ringo album was good. I really liked George's contributions that album made me really think there is something to the to those guys playing together. Well, especially since you've got John George and Ringo together on the same song. Right. Yeah. Paul was on the album Six O'Clock and Right, and I think he did something on sixteen, maybe. The quasi kazoo. <laughs> right. because uh, he's done such a great job on Lovely Rita. So So I, I liked it. And I, I liked it don't come easy. Although I knew almost instantly that Harrison had written it. <laughs> I think as he went along and, and struggled to be relevant, he, he got in with some folks that were not really caring for him and his career, but there are opportunities. Do you think the all-star band has been a good thing for him? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I've actually seen them three times and it's fun. I mean, you go to do these things and you're going to see Ringo do all of his hits. And then you're going to see, you know, really these people who don't get out Jack Bruce and uh, Ginger Baker right, and Todd, Todd, Todd and uh, um, Steve Luthaker. Uh, and his last single. I've got a single coming out because I made an EP and it's called Here's to the Nights. Don't remember. Here's to the friends we won't forget. Uh, was I thought really cool. Um, the Diane Warren song. Yes. It's interesting that he's decided to just do EPs. Right. You know? Not much to say about it, but... Uh, well, I'm, I'm thinking if I were 80, an EP would probably be about right. But he's doing another one. I mean, you know, since he can't go out on the road, would it have been better to just wait until the end of the year and put out an album? Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, the way the music industry works and streaming and all the stuff that's involved with it now, it's nothing like it was. You just, you know, put out your material as you go, you know, whatever formats. The only only thing that I get a chuckle over is this whole thing with McCartney and McCartney 3. You know, the marketing of that is just bizarre but it worked you know i guess it did he got he he got to number two in the states and he got to number one in england and that was what he wanted yeah but you know all those completists who have to buy like 600 versions of mccartney 3 in order to have it all (laughs) i just bought the ones that i liked that were pretty right but I, i still ended up with like four or five copies of the vinyl and that's fine i mean it just it it seemed like um you know, you, you can you can collect. It just seemed like so many variations that it was to a point of absurdity. <laughs> different colors and different arrangements, and a little bit here, and it was very strange. Uh, you know, I, I'm looking right now at a uh, a library full of books. You know, on the Beatles. Well, that that brings us around to the current day. Uh, let's talk about both what you think as a songwriter and performer who's 
no longer a spring chicken. And, you know, <laughs> a lot of people complain about McCartney's voice on McCartney 3. And live, too, for that matter. Well, you know, um, one, he's almost 80. Um, two, he's doing what he has always done, which is work with what he has. He does music. And so, yeah, he's not going to belt out some of the things he did at 20, but what he does with it is, is perfectly fine. You just have to accept it for what it is. You know, should he really be going out there and trying to do Maybe I'm Amazed three times a week? Yeah, that's questionable, I would say. Well, it can't be for the money unless uh, he does it for the family uh, families of people who do his tours. The musicians, the techs, the everything. You know, he continues to make that business generate. And if he appreciates playing, has a good time, maybe thinks, well, I could be sitting at home or partying every day. No, I don't want to do that. I mean, it's kind of what he chooses to do. And as long as he goes out there and there are thousands and thousands of people willing to, to see it, then, you know, go for it. Is that what's best for him and his career? You know, you look at Sinatra. The last couple of years of Sinatra were pretty iffy. Okay. Um, and, and that may be, but I think, I, I guess I, I'm thinking, what do you want him to do? You want him to Well, st- and then that's, that's my question. Do you, do, do you want him to stop um, and do one final great album. I mean, I, I don't know what their expectation for him is. Uh, you know, he still tours. He still writes. He still records and releases. He, well, I guess that's what he does and what he has always done. And, and if his final years are not what his peak years were, that's not really a surprise. <laughs> Well, for for sure, but I mean, if you if you ask me that question, what I would like to see him do is I would like to see him first off cut down the live show. If he wants to go and continue touring, great, but make it make it a ninety minute two hour show. Put an opening act on, and great, there you go. Okay, and cut out some of the the more difficult songs to sing. He's performing them adequately, but not much more than that. I mean, you know, as I say, the maybe, the maybe I'm amazed, for example. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe McCarty thinks, well, if I don't do maybe I'm amazed, that's like Sinatra not doing uh, <laughs> my, my way. way. Yeah. New York, New York. But uh, right. Well, but he he has dropped yesterday from the set list. It is the most played song ever. So, you know, I guess maybe <laughs> maybe him dropping it is going to help. And then as far as the recording, you know, I'm glad to see him still recording and, and keep keeping busy. And, and I also think, you know, the, the reimagined thing is, is a good thing. Write the songs, do them in your own way, but also sort of give them to other people and let them. You know, the, the one real weak point, although I love the song, is his performance on Kiss of Venus. You know, when he goes into the falsetto on, on the three album, it's like... <sighs> that's right. not great. Right. Yeah. Well, some wise man once told me to consider music like this. If you hear something, 
and and you don't like it, it wasn't written for you. Because the truth is, there will be some people who go, yeah, that's really good. I like that. I mean, it may be something that totally sets you on edge, but someone is going to like it. You know it's true. There's country country music and, <laughs> you know, all sorts of stuff. You know, it just it wasn't written for for you. And some of that is just, you know, we've as you say, we've been listening to him and his voice for so long. I listen to that song and it's like, well, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that would have been a stone cold classic. But right. And the cover, you know, is is probably actually better than McCartney's version. Well, you know, that's entirely possible. And it would be terrific if if that's what sold the music. You know, because what McCartney is at heart, I think, or has become, is a composer. And so, therefore, if somebody else does it and does a great job, that's cool. It doesn't have to be his version. And I also think that if if he hadn't put that out, let's say, and and then he passed away, and so it was an unknown set of recordings, we would be chomping at the bit to hear Paul McCartney's last recordings. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, don't, don't, don't like to think about that, but I mean, it is, it is inevitable, unfortunately. <laughs> right, right. It, it's coming. As you said, no spring chicken. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, do you, do you have anything else you want to let the listeners in on either about yourself and your, uh, your time in uh, the music world here in Houston or what, what you're looking forward to, uh, as the weeks pass by with this show. Well, you know, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to doing it again. So there'll be all sorts of things that are interesting to talk about, um, because it's just that kind of band. Oh, for sure. And I mean, you know, again, this year we've probably got a fair bit of reviewing to do because you know we're gonna have an uh, we have the eight disc linen set out now we have uh, a six or seven disc all things must pass set and then we're gonna have let it be after that right right I am looking forward to the film so much because I just think that uh, there's something to be said both pro and con for the revisionism. But I think that the Let It Be original Let It Be movie was such a terribly made movie. It's uh, such a downer. I mean, you know. Well, it's not only that. We're now all familiar with the songs. If you sit and through that movie, what you hear are chopped up pieces and a half of a chorus and a little bit of this and and I know I think he was trying to build it towards, you know, the big finale of playing all the songs. But it's just awful. He didn't edit that with any musical sense whatsoever. And it could be, you know, nobody was involved. <laughs> yeah, and, and some of that was that the, the Beatles, again, as always, wanted to be represented equally. You know, it's like, oh, you, you can't have another 30 seconds of John singing here because Paul was only singing for two minutes over there. Right. Well, you know, there was the the legendary three-hour cut um, that they all looked at. I think it was in August of 69. Yep. And when they decided to shorten it, the way, you know, that had a big to do with the editing. 
and you know, uh, then all the politics came in. You know, we don't want that much of Yoko. We don't want. We'll close here with "Let it be" or "Let it be naked." Which do you prefer? I like "Let it be original" because it's what I grew up on. Uh, musically, I like "Let it be naked" because I think that's more to what the vision that they had. Uh, yeah, I would tend to agree. I mean, you know, I could never get into the specterized long and winding road. I mean, you know, that's the one everyone refers to. But, I mean, it doesn't even sound like a cohesive recording. It sounds like he stuck the choir on top of it. Yeah, well, that's kind of what he did. You know, Lennon's bass line is not good. Well, other than Helter Skelter, when did John play a, a, a good bass line? You know, you... He, he had a certain style, but that wasn't it. Um, <laughs> and so uh, the fact that they wouldn't even ask Paul to fix the bass on, on this beautiful song is almost criminal. I, this has been a lot of fun. I think I look forward to uh, the weeks as they roll by. We'll do it again regularly. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by J. Young Kim, Feaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California.
I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.